Gresham College presents Is Human Evolution Over? by Professor Steve Jones. What I want to explore is what can we say, if anything, about the future of the species to which many of us claim to belong, Homo sapiens, um, given what we know about uh, the processes, the evolutionary processes that caused uh, that species to evolve. Well, the notion that, of change in the future um, you, uh, is really more or less universal. Um, it, you can see it again and again, many of which are just models of decline, but some are more optimistic. And maybe the man who was most optimistic was Thomas More here, um, who, uh, who, uh, who wrote a book called Utopia. Okay, which means the real place, a good place. And he had a, uh, there's a map of Utopia, um, which looks to me a bit like the Isle of Wight, which isn't, which isn't to me on heaven on earth in particular, but that's another story. Lots of yachts, as we can see there. Um, and his Utopia is interesting. It's a beautifully written book, of course. It written in 1516. And what happens is that in his Utopia, Society changes. Chamber pots are made of gold, okay? Because gold is a useful and easy, malleable metal. People who commit crimes are sent to hospital because there must be something wrong with them. People who become ill are put in prison because they haven't looked after themselves. And these are, these are all radical new ideas. But what's interesting is that this is a utopia of social and intellectual change. But about 100 years ago, or a bit more, as you'll see in a moment, that, that notion of the future uh, altered almost completely and now basically all our utopias are um, utopias of physical change of evolution. Okay, so here's one, a nice utopian inhabitant. Um, I think that's from Star Trek. I never really know as I've never seen Star Trek. Um, but uh, what we've got in something like Star Trek and many other bits of science fiction, and I don't, I don't read science fiction generally because it's all the same, um, but science fiction is always the same. Whatever it is, you get these strange blobby mutant creatures, biologically changed creatures from, that, from outer space or even here on Earth at some indeterminate time in the future. Um, but in fact, so they've changed biologically. They have these interesting uh, brow ridges and gigantic ears, a bit like the Duke of Edinburgh. Um, and uh, they've changed biologically. But if you look at the plots, the stories of these uh, new utopias, modern utopias, they aren't exactly the same as what we live in today, the rather dystopian world in which we live. There are tribes, there are gangs, there are wars, there are weapons, there's a love interest, kind of, there are quarrels, all this kind of stuff. So actually, people have changed, but society hasn't. And that's a really big shift in the way, perhaps, that we see the future. And I think we can trace that back to really the first modern work of science fiction in English, which is written by this guy here, not the gorilla, but H.G. Wells. And that's J.G. Wells, who was a student at Imperial College, so obviously it's obvious why he thought that everything was going to hell in a handcart. Um, but uh, he photographed here in about, 19, in about um, 1906, I think, um, in the Zoology Museum at University College London, which is where I work, in the Grant Museum, which I recommend to you all. It's a remarkable place. Um, and it's full of old fossils. I, uh, have, I take my lunch in the senior common room, which is even fuller of old fossils. Um, and uh, there he is, standing there, leaning on a gorilla with a huge human skull in his, in, his, um, in his hand. And he was very, very interested in the biological future. And he wrote, really, a magnificent uh, book, which is, I'm sure you've all read it, which is The Time Machine. And there's The Time Machine. And The Time Machine, whoops, I don't know what's going on there, go away. The Time Machine, oh, Jesus, God, technology. <laughs> the Time Machine, go away. All right. Uh, the, the time machine is, you know, it's, a, it's, um, it's 
the first modern piece, it's the first piece of science fiction in, in English. Jules Verne had written, you know, A Journey to the Moon and so on, um, but that's in French, so it doesn't count. And The Time Machine is really a rather good book, and of course you all know the plot of The Time Machine. It turns on somebody who invents a, um, a kind of bicycle upon which he can leap and cycle off into the future. And this is rather unlikely, there's a rather unlikely apparatus, and he's zizzing off into the future and he starts uh, he starts uh, he starts off and he zooms off into the future and lights and darks begin to blur into one and he stops at several thousand years um, in, in the future and he gets off his time machine and he finds himself in somewhere that at first sight looks a bit like I suppose Hampstead okay it's full of charming kindly people many of them vegetarians who live in delightful post-Georgian houses and are polite and loving to their partners, um, and um, they're called the Eloi. And this seems, at first sight, an ideal future. So he's very happy about the future, and he thinks, well, maybe I'll settle in this Camden Town, in, uh, in this Hampstead of the future. But the Eloi, it soon becomes clear, have a terrible secret, which they're very reluctant to divulge, which is actually there exists another uh, race of people called the Morlocks. And the Morlocks would find themselves today much more at home where I live, which is in Camden Town rather than Hampstead. And if you, if you go down to Camden Town Tube Station on a Saturday night, you'll find yourself entirely surrounded by Morlocks, <laughs> these, ter these, thug these terrible thuggish people who go around terrifying other, others and fighting and vomiting and that kind of stuff. And what his model is that there the human species has split into two. Okay. There has been an evolution into a charming and delightful form and into an evil and thuggish form. And of course, because he was a good and excellent novelist, uh, there is a twist in the tale, which is that the rulers are these terrible Morlocks who only come out at night and roam the streets. And the Eloi are their sheep and cattle. They're their uh, domestic animals, which they slaughter and eat for dinner. Okay. Now that actually, that's a good, that's a good story. Um, but in fact, it has, um, it, it has a, a, a clear tie with a lot of biological thinking at that time, and I've always showed this slide, much of which descends from this chap, Francis Galton. And Galton was convinced that the future was black, uh, dark, in the, because he was sure from his very uh, dubious researches that people of low quality, well, however you might want to define that, were having more children than people of high quality. And so indeed the human race might indeed split into geniuses, and he wrote a book called Hereditary Genius, uh, uh, a group in which, of course, he included himself and complete idiots, um, and he was very concerned about this. And you, you, this theme is still around. You only have to, to listen to, uh, to um, our recent education secretary to hear that that's true. Okay, um, you know, speaking as a man who, who man who passed the eleven plus, I obviously see myself as a genius. Um, and the eleven plus actually was set up kind of on that assumption too that there was a pool of hidden talent which wasn't being recognised, and we had to nurture these supposed geniuses um, to make sure they don't just get wiped out by the idiots. All right, um, didn't doesn't seem to have done all that much good. Okay, and Galton was quite blatant in his uh, views that something had to be done. And this is indeed where Wells got his idea from, as did many other people of that time, George Bernard Shaw being one, uh, Mary Stopes being another one, and all of them were convinced eugenicists. They, con they were convinced it was their, um, it was their uh, duty to ensure the future of the biological future of the human race by making sure that people of good quality repeat, uh, reproduced and people of poor quality did not. Okay. 
And that led to all kinds of disasters, as of course we know. And one of the classic disasters, which Galton was very much uh, wrote on, he wrote and wrote a hair a hair raising paper, which is in Nature, which is called Africa for the Chinese. And what he wants is all the Africans to disappear, and because they're useless, and the Chinese actually to fill it instead. And uh, this is an interesting diagram. Uh, it's rather not very perfectly correct. It shows the ability of different, or his supposed ability of different human races, inborn ability, um, and. It's, uh, in, factually, it's ludicrous, but it's an interesting diagram historically because it's the first ever use of what we call a histogram, of, uh, a graphic, uh, graphic display of some data or data-ish data. And you can see, as we put the various groups um, on, the, uh, on the scale of nature, the scala natura, the ancient Greeks were the smartest of all. And that's okay, because they're extinct, right? So that doesn't matter. And then we get to the English, which understandably are of the living species, of the living groups are the best. Then we have the Asians and the familiar dismal uh, racism we still face sometimes today. The uh, Africans, below them are the Australians, with a considerable overlap um, with dogs, etc. <laughs> I once uh, showed this sign in Sydney, this, uh, this uh, slide in Sydney, and it did not go down at all well. Um, I have to say, of course, there's absolutely no uh, truth in that, in that diagram, uh, but it shows the kind of mindset which was so very common to the, uh, to the time. And it's a mindset which is an evolutionary mindset. It comes from Darwin, and Darwin himself, give him his dues, being a genius, he, would, he didn't believe in this at all. He said, never say higher or lower. He didn't see any direction to evolution, either for humans or any other creature. But uh, what I'm going to try and do in this talk is to describe to you, and I'm sure you don't need the uh, detailed description, what Darwin's theory of evolution actually is, what its raw material is, and ask the question, <clears throat> can we make any predictions about the future of evolution um, from what we know has gone on in the recent, and perhaps even the distant past. And my thesis is, and I hope you'll agree with it at least in part, that at least in the sense which many people, or most people, uh, think of evolution as some kind of progressive business, of things, things can only get better, um, at least in that sense, in my view, evolution is probably pretty much, for the time being, and in the developed world, over. And I hope I can persuade you of that during the course of this lecture. So let's remind ourselves about Darwinism. And it's very simple. Darwin described evolution in three words, descent with modification. We can, re we can rephrase that in three even shorter words, genetics plus time. It turns on differences, inherited differences, and they come from errors we now know, although Darwin didn't, that are called mutations. Okay? And mutations happen all the time, as we'll see in a moment. Then there are Darwin's descent with modification has a, uh, has a very clever add-on, which is called natural selection. Inherited differences in the ability to copy genes. And if you have uh, inherited a mutation, a genetic variant, that makes it more likely that you will survive, find a mate and reproduce, um, then that copy of the gene will get more common than because other people who don't have it don't do as well as you do. So there's a, it's kind of, okay, that's, the, that's, that's uh, the other familiar agreement. And the third one, which is perhaps a bit less familiar, is random change, evolution by accident. And in fact, it was that which really stuck Darwin when he went round the world on HMS Beadle. The first line of The Origin of Species is when 
when, when acting as naturalist upon HMS, upon HMS Beagle, I noticed some peculiarities in the distribution of the animals and plants to South America. And the peculiarity was that on the Galapagos, there were fewer species of plants and animals than there were on the mainland. Okay. So, and that, he thought, had happened by accident. Only a few had, over, had actually got there. Okay. So that's the Darwinian... <clears throat> That's the Darwinian um, agenda, and I want to uh, explore each one of them. Uh, variation, which comes from mutation, natural selection, and uh, isolation and, and random change. What's going to happen to them? Well, let's talk, first of all, about mutation. Okay? There's a perhaps rather less distinguished piece of science fiction. Um, <clears throat> where we have Bron Fane, whoever the hell he was, has written a book where there's x-rays and giant mutant rats run around uh, striking fear into the hearts of the, of the, hearts of the citizens. And okay, fair enough, um, uh, x-rays and so on certainly do cause mutations, and so chemicals and, um, and things of that kind. That's certainly true. But in the um, 1940s, uh, the very prehistory of genetics, in fact, there was a strong feeling that we were actually going to suffer a great increase in the mutation rate by virtue of radiation in particular, to a degree chemicals, but mainly radiation. And that led to perhaps the most cynical scientific experiment ever carried out, which was the atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, there were military reasons behind that, but they were certainly seen as scientific experiments because there was a team of physicists waiting to go into the cities as soon as, it, as the Japanese had, um, had uh, surrendered, and also a team of geneticists. And the geneticists were strongly of the opinion that they would actually find a huge number of new mutations in the offspring of those who survived the bomb. Well, the physicists got in, and they were astonished by the degree of, uh, of, of dam damage. This is, the, this is a picture of the Hiroshima bomb actually going off, and within a few minutes, what had been a thriving city looked like this. And uh, I've actually been there, and it's rather a distressing place to go, that's for sure. Um, and um, um, many people, of course, many thousands of people were killed at once, uh, many more thousands of people died slowly and in agony over the next few weeks because uh, they had radiation sickness. The DNA in their body cells had been destroyed by the radiation from the bomb, and so they could no longer pump water in and out, and they died awful deaths as a result. But the, um, uh, the geneticists... Turn, uh, you can see there's a woman who's been burned by the flash and will certainly die of radiation sickness. The geneticists were sent in with the expectation that they would look at all the children of people who were irradiated and compare them to those who had been outside the city at the time of the bomb. And this was called initially the ABCC, the Atomic Bomb Control Commission, and it found itself in this railway carriage which was parked outside, uh, parked in, on the, in, in the ruins of Hiroshima. Well, I'm not going to go into great length about it. They actually they went on for, for, 40, for nearly 50 years. Uh, they gave up in 1995, actually. They stopped in 1995. And in retrospect, forgetting the... Uh, ethical issues, which are, of course, very real. In retrospect, their task was hopeless, because in 1945, when they went in, we didn't know anything about genetics at all. We didn't know what the human chromosome number was. We didn't know how to look at uh, genetic variation in proteins. DNA was known to be the genetic material, but we didn't know it was the double helix. Um, so we were totally ignorant. Um, and it's not surprising that they really got very little 
out of it. However, towards the end of the process, um, they began to get some rather more sophisticated techniques where they could look at a sample of uh, blood proteins from the children whose parents had been in the bomb and had survived, and other children whose parents had been outside the city and survived. And uh, it was a huge task. They looked at hundreds of thousands or millions of protein changes. And in fact, they found, um, they found, uh, they found a total of 28 of them, okay, when you compare the children to the parents. Now, annoyingly though, I shouldn't say annoyingly, perhaps reassuringly, um, what actually happened was that, uh, that there was no effect they could find of the uh, bombs at all. Of the 28, about 14 were in the, in the offspring of people who had been radiated, and 14 or so were in the offspring of people who had not been irradiated. So, so far, so bad. But they did find one quite unexpected effect, that actually uh, 26 of the 28 new mutations were in the father rather than the mother. And that's something that we now know and understand quite well, which is that, um, that um, uh, uh, males are the agents of many, many mutations. It's particularly true with older males. Here's a picture of one of them. That's actually me, 40 years ago, collecting fruit flies in the California deserts. Um, and I, people tell me I have changed a bit since then. Um, I still have the moustache in an envelope somewhere in case I should need it. <laughs> in case I should need it. Um, okay, and that's the process of aging. And the process of aging is a biological phenomenon. It comes at least in part from damage to DNA, to damage to your own DNA, which often manifests itself in things, rather unfortunate things like this, which is the rate of colon cancer uh, in relation to age. And colon cancer, like many cancers, or all cancers, is a genetic disease of body cells. So you can see that your body cells decay and degenerate with age. And that's because they divide it and divide it and divide it and divide it as you get older and older and more and more uh, mistakes are made. However, it goes it's worse than that. My dear, it's worse than that. Um, it's, it's worse than that because of the way, the different ways in which sperm and egg are made. Okay. Now, women make all their eggs before they're born. And they, they go through this process of what's called meiosis, of producing uh, uh, half the dose of DNA um, before they themselves are born quite a long time before they're born, actually. Um, and then they're just frozen at that moment until they reach maturity, and then these eggs are released at, uh, at intervals throughout their reproductive life. So, in fact, every egg that uh, a woman passes on is separated by only about five or six cell divisions from uh, the egg that made her. Okay? Now, however old she is, her, her eggs were all made at the same time before birth. Men are not like that. We never rest. Even when we're giving lectures at Gresham College, we make large numbers of sperm. All right, um, and every time that there's a, that we make a sperm, there's a chance of an error, a cell division in cell division, and the figures are quite startling. If you look at the number of divisions between um, between. Um, uh, a 20-year-old father, the number of uh, cell divisions between the sperm that made him and the sperm that he passes on, there be, because it's divide, 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 uh, there's been about 20 cell divisions or 25 cell divisions uh, for that rather young father. If you look, on the other hand, for a, for a, um, 
uh, 28-year-old father, there had been something like 200 cell divisions. And from a 60-year-old father, there had been 800 to 1,000 cell divisions. And uh, to, from the sperm that made him to the sperm that he passes on. And every one of those involves the chance of a mutation. And indeed, there are plenty of conditions where you look at the father's age, and you can see the father's age along the horizontal axis there, for achandroplasia, for example, and that's the picture of somebody with short arms and legs, um, uh, Marie Barbolo, he was, a Velasquez painting, um, and uh, a striking fit between the incidence of this new mutation and the age of the father. And it's worth pointing out that nearly all children with, uh, with achondroplasia are born as new mutations to older fathers. And the effect isn't small. It, it's a multiplication of something like, uh, oh, probably 15 or 20 times compared to a young father. And that's much, much more than any radiation dose. Any radiation dose that would uh, push the mutation rate up by 15 times would be instantly lethal. So this is quite an important thing. It's not just, these are all skeletal mutations um, and uh, nervous system mutations. They all show the same effect. But even, um, even mutations and errors which lead to schizophrenia, which mental is a mental disorder, you see again the effect is really quite striking uh, from about, from uh, a goes up by about five times in uh, fathers over 50 compared to those under 25. So the effect is big. So if you're worried about the future, the mutation rate in the future, you don't have to worry about chemicals in the water or radiation in the x-ray machine. You have to worry about how many older fathers are there, okay? And what's surprising and counterintuitive is actually in the developed world now, there are fewer older fathers than there might have been a century and more ago. And that's because, we, that seems odd, because we're all used to the idea that perhaps in, in Dickensian times or earlier, uh, fathers started getting down to their uh, paternal duties when they were 16 or so, um, uh, which they probably did. Um, because, you know, the chances of staying alive weren't all that great, so it was important to gather the rosebuds while he may, as it were. Um, and uh, that's true. But now we don't do that. Perhaps kids do start having sex at that time, but they use contraception so that there's a delay. So that the average age of a father in Britain is now 28, okay, rather than 16. So you might think, oh, blimey, well, that's, uh, that, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's more older fathers. But actually the shape of this curve is that it gets steeper and steeper and steeper with age. So it's really old fathers that matter, and the number of really old fathers has definitely gone down. Here we've got fertility with age, right, number of, the number of children, or fertility rate, which is basically the number of children, in France, which is a fairly developed country, okay, in um, Pakistan, which is rather less developed, but still fairly affluent, and Cameroon, which is actually now getting quite affluent, but when this thing was made 10 years ago, it wasn't so. And actually what you can see is that the crucial group, fathers of over 40, are much more common in places like Pakistan and Cameroon than they are in places like France. Because what we do in the developed world now is we start early and we stop early. Okay? We have fewer children and we squeeze them into a narrow window. So if anything, the mutation rate far from going up, as many people claim to believe, is, if anything, going, going down. Okay? So that's mutation. So let's move on to the next part of the Darwin story, which is natural selection. Now, I always show these slides of natural selection, so if you've heard them before, uh, just fall into a quiet slumber. Uh, but it, many people think that natural selection is somehow a complicated and baffling process, but it isn't. It's childishly simple. Inherited differences in the chances of reproduction. And uh, um, it's, uh, it, it's, I often say, 
as I often say, it's design without a designer. It can make incredibly complicated objects with no forethought at all. And one of the standard idiot comments by creationists is, look at the eye. How could that extraordinary organ have evolved without somebody up there, God, um, designing it all and making sure it all fits together? But you don't need to do that because you can generate the most astonishingly complex um, organs with very, very simple um, systems. Now, it's a, I often think of natural selection as a factory, a factory for making almost impossible things. And strangely enough, um, that was my first experience of natural selection. I left school to train to become an engineer, rather foolishly, or a fitter rather than an engineer. And I went to work in, uh, in the Unilever's, Lever Brothers soap factory on Liverpool's left bank in the Willow Peninsula, of Port Sunlight. And I worked in what was known as the detergent shed. And the way you make detergent then and now, you take an enormous vat, not quite as big as this room, but pretty big, um, filled with a boiling chemical liquid, and you push the um, liquid uh, through a nozzle and it comes screaming out at a tremendous noise, which is one of the reasons I'm deaf. Um, it comes screaming out and, the, uh, in, and breaks into a powder which falls and you collect it in a vapour which you fan around and condense and use again. And in my day, the nozzle looked like this. This big, simple constriction, and it didn't work very well. Um, it uh, made grains of different sizes, it got blocked, and most important, it wore out very quickly. And these things, which were made of stainless steel, were very expensive. So um, the factory owners across the world uh, hired intelligent designers, mathematicians, to try and make it better without much success because the mathematics of shifting, of a phase transition, as it's known, shifting from a, a liquid into a powder plus a vapor is not easy to understand. So almost without, almost without realizing it, these people, these engineers, moved to a precise analogy of the Darwinian mechanism of inherited differences in reproduction. What they did was to take these nozzles, copy them, mutate them, uh, take one co copy and change it slightly, make it longer or shorter, different place for the constriction, a longer or shorter constriction, scratches on the inside, and maybe one of the ten copies they made did better. So they took that one, melted the other nine down, uh, they took that one, and they made ten more copies. Uh, changed at random once again, mutated once again. And they went through that process again and again. And as they went through that process, something fairly remarkable began to happen. You began to evolve an almost impossible nozzle through this process of natural selection. And after only 45 generations, we end up with this extraordinary thing, which works probably 100 times better than what went before. Okay? Nobody designed that. Nobody knows why it works better. Nobody needs to know why it works better. It just works better. And that's evolution by natural selection. And this approach is now widely used by engineers, by computer scientists. It's a standard approach in many, uh, many aspects of technology. So, as I say, um, what evidence is there that this might have happened in humans? Well, there's quite a lot, and there's one classic case, which you may know about, so we'll go through it fairly quickly, um, which uh, turns on the undoubted difference in appearance of humans across the world. And it's worth remembering what a, a collection, of collection of arivists we all are, nearly all of us are. Um, we evolved, emerged in Africa, nearly all of human history was in Africa, and we didn't get into Europe in any numbers until about 80,000 years ago. We didn't get into Northern Europe permanently until about uh, 12,000 years ago. We didn't get into the Americas um, until about 20,000 years ago, okay? So, you know, we're, we're, we're a recent creature. And of course, moving out of Africa led to a totally different um, series of environmental challenges. Um, if you map that out, 
One of the one of the well known challenges, of course, is in skin colour, and that's the uh, that's the skin colour map across the world. Um, and we know a lot about the genetics of it. Um, rather surprisingly, you can find one of the genes involved um, in fish, in zebrafish. It was found in a thing called the golden zebrafish. And zebrafish are widely used in biology because you could see them as they develop. They're transparent. Um, the golden the zebrafish is so called because it's got these black stripes which are filled with the pigments called melanin. The golden one in the middle there, as you can see, uh, has the stripes, but they're not filled with black pigment. So they're, much, they're more useful to do biology on. And if you look at, uh, at uh, below that, you can see the grains of melanin in the wild type and the, uh, the absence thereof in the, um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in the mutant fish. Well, you, once you've got the gene in fish, you can look for it in humans. It's take you a second. You just type it, or you have to type the sequence in. You type it into a thing called SwissProp, which is a database, um, and it'll say whether you've got A, that gene, and B, that mutant in humans. The answer is yes, you do. And the distribution of the mutant is actually rather interesting because here are, well, let's just look at the old world first and, the, and Europe and Africa. Here are Africans, and nearly all Africans, I've got the blue segment here, which is the ver version that can make melanin. Nearly all Europeans have got the yellow segment, which is the version which cannot make melanin. So sometime on the journey into Europe, there was a mutation, uh, which was for some reason was advantageous. Okay. There's a spin on that story, because if we look over in China and Japan and at Native Americans, who are generally speaking quite light colored, they don't have much melanin in their skin, uh, but they've done it in a different way. They've still got the African form of the mutation, the blue one, but they've had a uh, break in a second part of the melanin factory so that they fail to make melanin for a different reason. So why is it so advantageous? Why does natural selection uh, pick that up? Well, it's to, to do, as you may well know, uh, to, with vitamin balance. If you don't have enough vitamin D, you're in big trouble. And vitamin D, which is in oily fish and in stuff like liver and stuff like that, um, uh, is unusual among vitamins because you can make it yourself in sunlight in your own skin. All right, and if you don't have it, you have all kinds of problems. You famously have rickets, soft, bendy bones. And if you were to go from here to Bunhill Fields, the cemetery just up the road there, and dig up the many thousands of children's bones who are there, um, probably from the 18th century, probably 60 or 70% of them would have had rickets, and would, would, that would have been one reason they would have died, because uh, there was smoke in the air, uh, they, were all, there was, they were cold, they were wearing thick clothes, there wasn't the habit of going into the sun. People bricked up their windows because of the window tax. So rickets was really a, was really a, a real scourge. Um, and it's still a problem. Here's what actually happens if you don't have enough vitamin D. All kinds of things go wrong. Osteoporosis, muscle weakness, heart problems, schizophrenia, depression. Um, it's a big, big issue. And in fact, in some parts of the world, Glasgow most of all, there is a claim that there is a genuine shortage of rickets, among the, a genuine shortage of vitamin D among the population, simply because they've, um, they, they maybe have light skins, but they don't have much sunlight. So the effect is quite striking. Here's the amount of vitamin D in Europeans, um, European-Americans, um, uh, in the dotted line, and African-Americans. And you can see for both groups, both the light-colored and the dark-colored groups, the incidence goes up of vitamin D in the summer, but it goes down in the winter. And in fact, African-Americans, on the average, only just managed to make enough vitamin D. And in fact, in Britain, the group who is most at risk, and it's a real issue, a real problem, are um, uh, immigrants, not necessarily immigrants, but Asian Britons, 
uh, women who tend to wear long, all-encompassing clothing, don't go outside very much, never dream of sunbathing, and also have a rather small amount of vitamin D in their diet. So it's a real issue. So any error or change which led to um, the ability to make vitamin D, in other words, losing your black pigment and gaining white, gain, becoming light in color, would be very, very rapidly favored. And it was favored very quickly. That leaves one question, perhaps the most important question in today's biology, which is, what is the point of this mutant here? Okay. <laughs> here, here, God preserve us, is possibly our future prime minister, God help us. Um, and you can see, and here's his classically... Um, active and interested pose here. Um, and he's a blonde, and he's a real blonde. He's a blonde blonde, that's for sure. He's not a peroxide blonde. Um, and uh, that's a real question. What the hell is the point of blondes? Why do we have blondes? And the, it's an extension of the, uh, of the, of the um, white skin story, because blondes, historically, were only found um, in northwest Europe. That's the only place they ever got to be common. Okay? Uh, and if you were to go to Scandinavia, something like 80% of the genes would, would be for blonde hair. Now, why is that? It turns on an extension of the argument I've just been giving you, which is actually that farming didn't get up there until about, about, um, about 4,000 years or less ago. Uh, and, uh, and the farmers had a lousy diet. They didn't have the porridge, basically, just like Scotland today. Uh, and so they were really, really in desperate need of vitamin D. And the reason that farming got up there uh, was able, the reason you could grow crops up in the northwest of Europe and not at the same latitude in the centre has to do with the Gulf Stream. If you draw a line through Birmingham, and I know many people have been tempted to do just that, um, <laughs> what you find is that north of that line in Central Europe, you cannot grow cr crops, seeds of the kind that the ancient farmers grew. But, uh, but um, in Western Europe, you can, and that's because of our friend the Gulf Stream that gives us an artificially warm climate in the spring. And grains need a warm spring in order to germinate. And so these people suffered a big problem. They had the ability to grow grains, but it rained all the time in the spring. It wasn't sunny. There was no sun at all. There was no vitamin D in the, their diet. Uh, they couldn't get it in sunlight, so they became Borises. So that's the origin of blondes. I'm glad I got that straight for you. But it's a classic example of natural selection at work. And it's happened in the last few thousand years. And I could multiply examples of that, but I don't need to, but I'll just show you. Let me just give you one, which is perhaps less familiar. This is the evolution to, of the ability to drink milk as an adult, okay? And when you think about it, it's very odd that many humans, everybody in this room, almost everybody in this room, I'm sure, would automatically, I mean, I, we don't do it anymore, but uh, I, I used to have a glass of milk when I was an adult with no problems at all. But for the great majority of the world's population, if Chinese, Japanese, and so on, uh, uh, Native Australians, Native South, Native South Africans, um, uh, you give them a pint of milk and they don't like it at all. They get diarrhea, they're bloated, they burp, okay? And that makes sense because in nature, adults don't get milk, okay? Um, uh, they get milk from their mothers, but when they grow up, that then stops. But in uh, about 4,000 years ago, um, we got, began to get the origin of cattle that gave milk. And I think you can see that the incidence of the ability to drink milk, which is actually quite striking changes over Europe, from about 90% in Scotland all the way down to about 40% in the south of Spain over a short distance, fits exactly with the uh, emergence of, of, of cattle and milk drinking. And this group here in Nigeria and around are a group called the Fulani, who independently took up um, milk drinking from cattle, and they too have that uh, ability. So it's a powerful 
process. So the question then arises, okay, what's going to happen to it in the future? Well, again, it's very hard to be sure, but it seems uh, pretty clear that it's lost much of its power. As I said, um, where am I here? Getting into a panic here. Um, as I said, um, uh, natural selection is, it turns on inherited differences in reproduction. And natural selection is a bit like the driving test. It's got two papers. It's got a theory paper, okay, which you have to pass, and you've got a very, then you've got a really difficult practical. Um, I passed the theory paper because I'm still alive, rather surprisingly. So the first part is survival. If you're going to reproduce, you have to stay alive. That does, generally speaking, help, I find. Um, but I failed the second paper because I have no children. So you have to look at variation to measure the strength of natural selection, variation in survival, together with variation in the number of children that people have. And if we look at those two, we see some dramatic changes um, over the last few, few centuries. Let's talk first about variation in survival. Um, this is a, a slide that I show my first-year students on their first day at UCL, just to cheer them up. Um, I say, these are the patterns of life and death um, in England and Wales over the last 400 years. And in Shakespeare's time, only one in three made it to be... Made it to be um, uh, made it to be uh, 21. Darwin's time, or a bit before, but all in one and two, and now 99% do. <coughs> of course, we have, in, those, in the early days, we, de we died from external enemies, things like cholera, tuberculosis, cold, starvation, violence, all of which have been magically banished from this fair land, that is to say. Uh, we still have to die in the end, and now we die of things like diabetes and heart disease, which have a genetic component, but that's a slightly different issue. So that's, um, that's everything has changed. Now, that's in... England, which is, of course, the high point of world civilization. But in fact, if you look at the patterns of mortality, apart from, rather off, apart from Africa, um, all the, these are Asia, South America, um, India, and so on. There's been a remarkable convergence across the world in mortality patterns since from the 1950s to 2005, and they've got even closer now. So that even in places like India, which in the 1950s, the mean mortality uh, the mean age of death was 40, it's now 70 and rapidly approaching 75. Now, that's all a good thing, but what that tells us, of course, is that that removes some of the fuel of natural selection, which is differences in ability to stay alive, some of which, no doubt, were influenced by genes. So that's the, uh, the, the convergence of uh, world life expectancy. So that part of the natural selection exam has become much easier. We all stay alive long enough to reproduce. The question is, how many of us actually get round to it and reproduce? Um, that, too, is, um, is a, a rather surprising result. Um, where are we? Uh, so this, is what comes of, this is what comes of printing on both sides of the paper. Here's a picture of a family on holiday in Sweden in the 1960s. The gentleman... Uh, who's, um, who's uh, shown in a circle. You may recognize, he's no longer with us, that's Osama bin Laden, okay? And Osama bin Laden was uh, the son of a chap called Mohammed bin Laden, who was very rich. And Mohammed bin Laden, being a, a philoprogenitive kind of guy, had 22 wives and 53 children. And in the year of Osama's birth, he had six children. And everybody in that picture is Osama's brother, sister, half-brother, or half-sister. So that Osama bin Laden had a huge number of offspring. Sorry, Mohammed bin Laden had a huge number of offspring. Osama had a good few too, but didn't live up to his father. Now, 
Okay, that's fine for Mohammed bin Laden, but he had 22 wives. That means that 21 poor sods didn't have any wives at all. Okay, so there was a huge variation in male reproductive success, and we can see evidence of that um, in the past. What we can look, we can from um, historical records and from inferences. Um, uh, from buildings and that kind of stuff. We can work out the range of reproductive success in hunter-gatherers, people who are herders, and people who become farmers and then indeed become rich and powerful rulers. And what we find is that as society gets more unequal, some males in black do extraordinarily well and regularly might have, among the Incas, some of them might have had 350 children, whereas in hunter-gatherer societies, everybody has about the same number of um, children. Okay. Now, in some ways, of course, we've all become hunter-gatherers again. We, we go to Sainsbury's, or Waitrose in your case, just to say, um, and we hunt and we gather on the shelves and we get what we need. It takes us an hour a day or less if you can be bothered to, to get Ocado to deliver it. Okay. So we're living a hunter-gatherer life, and in fact, what that has done is to make, uh, is to greatly reduce the variation in in uh, reproductive success, particularly in males rather than women, rather than females. But if you look at the genes across Europe and the, 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 across the world, you see some striking examples of uh, successful men. This is Genghis Khan, and Genghis Khan had, uh, like all men, a particular Y chromosome, and Genghis Khan was famous and notorious for his, um, for his sexual proclivities, and he had hun hundreds and hundreds of mistresses, literally hundreds of mistresses, and hundreds of possibly even thousands of children. His sons did just the same, because they were powerful Khans too. And in fact, if you draw out the map of that what's called star cluster, this group of Y chromosomes, which almost certainly descend from Genghis Khan with a few mutations, if we draw out a map of that, um, of that, of that, um, of that variant, you can see that all across the Mongol Empire, there were lots and lots of them. There are probably a hundred million or more men in the world today who carry Genghis Khan's Y chromosome. And it's kind of interesting, you take the Hazara, who are not in the area shown here as his empire, but do believe themselves to be descendants of Genghis. They're dead right, they have Genghis's Y chromosome. Okay. And once again, if Genghis Khan was fertilizing every woman in the landscape. Lots of men were not doing it. So there was lots of variation in male mating success, and in fact, rather less um, variation in female mating success. And that, too, has gone away. We have the same kind of convergence that everybody has roughly the same number of children. Here's fertility in Europe um, from 1880 to 2000. And certainly, the, the, the average number of children has got less, that's for sure. Okay. But what's more interesting is the variation has got less too. So in fact, everybody now in Western Europe, male and female, has about two children, two children, 2.1 in England, 1.8, no, 1.6 in Italy, so soon no more Italians. Uh, but you know, we've lost that part of the fuel of selection too. And what we can do, we can actually put those figures together and we can say, okay, well, let's, let's correct... Um, for the disappearance of differences in survival and for differences in fertility. And we can work out a figure that's called the opportunity for natural selection. How much raw material is there in terms of differential reproductive success for selection to work on? And it's changed and very, very quickly. Here's the figures for the Gambia. 
1955, there's the figures, they went up a bit as, as Gambia became more affluent, but as the Gambia, which we've been to, which is a, a very civilized kind of country with good educational system, uh, as that happened, very quickly, really, within 25 years or 30 years, the opportunity for selection, the total variation in reproductive success just plummeted to half what it had been in 25 years. And over longer periods, it's done, it's, uh, it's done much, much more than that. Um, uh, in India, for example, if you compare middle-class Indians with hill tribes, you know, people who still kind of, sort of live um, uh, a, 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 a kind of life which uh, early farmers had, um, the natural selection, the raw material, it's, it's lost nine-tenths of its power. So that's We've got less mutations and less natural selection. And let me move to the final part of the equation, which is evolution at random, which is perhaps a little bit less familiar, but this is a diagram I show to my students. Well, let's imagine we've got a bottle full of equal numbers of green and blue beads. And we pour 10 of them into a, into a cup. Um, and by chance, purely by chance, we get seven blue ones and three um, so three green ones. Then they all reproduce until we got back to the thousand or so or the hundred or so we had in the bottle originally. And in the next generation, we've got 70 blue ones and 30 green ones. So simply by virtue of going through a bottleneck of a small number of people, um, uh, we've had a dramatic change in the genes. And if that happens generation after generation after generation, you very quickly get this phenomenon, which is known as genetic drift. And this, these are three diagrams various generations, repeating that experiment again and again with different size samples, very small samples of 20, samples of 200, samples of 2,000. And you can see in small populations, you get a very rapid divergence, slower in medium size and very slow indeed in big populations. And in fact, of course, uh, humans have always been rare. What we can do, one of, the most one of the most boring bits of research I've ever read, has put all the mammals on a line. And this gentleman, who actually is a friend of mine, so I shouldn't be rude about him, um, he found to astonishment, his astonishment that there are more mice in the world than there are elephants. Okay, well, Big deal, I hear you say. Um, and, but you put everything on the line, from little voles, which are the smallest, to elephants, which are the biggest, and everything sits there. That farm animals don't count. It has to be wild animals. They all sit on this line, an uncannily straight line. With one exception, um, which is Homo sapiens, um, we are 10,000 times more common than we ought to be in terms of our body size, okay? Um, and uh, that becomes from the population explosion which happened with farming. Every one of you on the way to this talk saw more people than the average human being, who was a hunter-gatherer, would have seen in his or her lifetimes. So we're used to thinking that we're a very abundant species, but in fact, we're not. And we can, uh, historically, we were not. And we can see plenty of places where this random change in populations has had a big effect. Most of all, of course, on isolated populations in the middle of nowhere, here's a famous one, Pingalap. Pingalap, um, uh, the man who wrote, uh, Oliver, Oliver, Oliver Sacks wrote a really good book called The, called the Island of the Colorblind. And Pingalap has got a uniquely high frequency of an otherwise very, very rare gene that's called achromatopsia, which is basically, first of all, you're colorblind, and secondly, and much worse, uh, you can't see in bright light. So if you go out in daylight, you're almost blind with achromatopsia. It's genetic. It's a genetic phenomenon. And something like 60% of the population, something probably half as many 
cases that are known in the world have got this problem. So uh, it's called the art of the colorblind because everybody has learned to cope with this and they all live happily uh, together. But if you look at the pedigrees, it turns out that every one of those individuals has indeed descended from one man who was one of the only three survivors of a gigantic typhoon which wiped the island clean um, in, about, in about 1750. And he, one man and two women were left. He must have carried that gene hidden away, and it's got very common purely at accident. Okay, so in small populations, it's actually very, uh, it's very, um, it's very, um, it's a very powerful force. But it's also quite powerful. Oh, what are we doing here? Okay, it's quite powerful in bigger populations too, particularly in populations where there are very different levels of success in having sex and reproduction by men and by women. And we've seen some of these ex extraordinary figures like Genghis Khan. But even in the modern world, there are quite big differences from place to place. In Finland, uh, Finland, well, we all know what Finland's like. Um, women are actually more variable in their sexual success than men are. So they, um, okay. Uh, in Norway, it's one. In the US, it's 1.2. Men are a bit more variable. In Britain, I think it's about 1.1. But then we go into, uh, into, into tri tribes in South America and in and in and in Africa, and you do get much more variation among men than in women. That has an interesting, it has two interesting effects. First of all, it means that the population of male genes, Y chromosomes, is smaller than the population of the non-male version, X chromosomes, okay? And that's because if males don't have any children, they may as well be dead. They failed the, they failed the, um, the test of natural selection. And that tells us, um, now this is rather an overcomplicated um, slide, which I'll try and talk your way through. What we can do is look at the amount of variation in the male chromosomes and the female chromosomes across the world and try to work out how big the bottlenecks were, which we certainly went through as we left Africa to other places. Now this is really quite a complicated slide. I should try and make a copy of myself, which is simpler. But what we've got is the estimate of the bottleneck size um, of people in uh, women in red and men in blue, and we have an estimate of the smallest bottleneck and of the overall bottleneck over the whole of history. But let's just look at the smallest bottleneck at the bottom. Okay, the whole of the population of Africa descends from 57 men and 32 women. A small number of those got out to this central pit here, 26 men uh, and 15 women. Uh, if we move over towards uh, India, populations that are growing, 1,000... Sorry, 1,026 women and 15 men. India, an enormous population explosion, but huge sexual inequality, just a few men with children, 29,500 women and 1,600 men. And then over in the New World, we crossed from Siberia, the founding population was 90 women and 21 men. So that's a big, big difference. And that tells us something rather interesting, rather as an aside, in the biblical tale of Adam and Eve. Now, these guys, uh, they originated that first and least original of all sin of having sex, okay? But, and they, they certainly existed in some sense. There was an Adam and there was an Eve. But we can be completely sure they never met because the population size of the Adams, the males, was much less than the population size of the Eves, the females. So we can draw a little diagram of that. And here we have a population of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 males, which each generation only two or three males reproduce. And they're the, they're the black lines, and the thin lines are male lines that come to an end. And we'll see in one, two, three, four generations, we can get back to Adam. Now, now let's do the Eve. 
And in, e in Eves, where there are ten, each generation more reproduce, four, three or four reproduce. And in that case, we have to go back one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten generations to get to Eve. And in fact, Adam, the universal ancestor of the human race, probably lived something like 80,000 years ago. Okay. So he was human. Eve wasn't human. Eve probably, not a modern human, she probably lived about 150,000 years ago and she was a Homo erectus. Well, be that as it may, but it shows the subtlety of population bottlenecks. They have quite a big, big map, but a big, big effect. And in fact, where are we? If we draw a map of the amount of genetic variation in human populations across the globe as we moved out from Africa into the, the, the southern tip of South America and the distant islands of the Pacific, you can see the overall amount, of, overall amount of variation goes down. So that in somewhere like the southern tip of South America, we've only got a little bit more than half the variation in Africa, okay, and in Europe we're intermediate. And that just shows the power, once again, the power of bottlenecks. And that too has actually changed quite strikingly, because, um, you know, history has always been made in bed, but now the beds are actually getting much closer. Um, once we stayed close to where we were born, and populations um, could build their own identity, and in fact, uh, people had a very small choice of who they could mate with. And if you had one very dominant male and lots of females, um, then basically perhaps only that male would have children. But now, of course, we have what's uh, the, most, the most important um, invention of all to an evolutionary biologist, which is the bicycle. You no longer have to marry the boy or the girl next door. You can get on your bicycle or your 747 and come to UCL or whatever you like and have a much bigger choice of partners. So the inequality in male mating success um, uh, evens out and the population size gets much bigger. Okay? The, but the effects of a bottleneck get much less. And as populations begin to blend, the population size gets bigger and bigger. And the classic case has to do with one group who are very interested in their own evolution, who are African-Americans. And African-Americans, understandably, feel that their past was stolen from them, and they're very curious to know how much are they African and how much, they, how much are they um, uh, European in ancestry. And there's this rather dubious company, 23andMe, who I have rather mixed feelings about, but they will do something that's called ancestor painting. They'll take a, your set of chromosomes and for a couple of hundred dollars, they'll tell you how many of your chromosomes come from Africa, and this is one woman, quite a lot of her chromosomes come from Africa, how many come from Europe, there's the black sections, how many come from Asia, now, Asia seems odd, but of course, Native Americans are basically Asia. And you see, this is quite an admixed population. So that the, um, there has been effectively quite a large population size there because both Euro Europeans and Africans, slaves, were mating. Uh, of course, it was the European men that took advantage of the African women. Um, but the effect is there. And of course, the effect is much, much more real today. In London, which is probably the most sexually open city in the world. Um, if you take a teenager in London walking through the streets, um, one of whose parents is an Afro-Caribbean, for half of them, uh, the other parent will be white. So there we've got almost a complete blending of two groups. And there, in effect, we've got a much bigger population of people who are mating and much less chance of these random bottlenecks through small groups with only a few people succeeding in mating. Uh, you can put figures on that to some degree by asking yourself a simple question. How far apart was your, your birthplace from that of your partner compared, and in my case, my wife was born in New York, uh, Manhattan, 
I was born, I was born in West Wales, so we, that was about 3,000 miles apart, um, compared to the distance apart where your parents were born and where your mother's mother was born, your mother's father was born. My parents were born three miles apart in West Wales. I was once lecturing to this to students, and one arrogant little sod shouted from the back, and it shows. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, work, I didn't work out. I didn't work out who it was. And of course, that effect, that effect has now become absolutely immense. Uh, these are the flights from Heathrow. Uh, I should have put Ryanair, but the effect is even bigger, of course. Um, you, can, you can now find a partner from across the globe. So effectively, the whole population of the globe, it's not quite one random mating population, but it's rapidly getting that way. So no more bottlenecks. Um, you can see it, and I've sh shown this before here, by looking at surnames which are localized here with the Joneses in 1881. And by 1998, we've moved out, carrying our genes with us. And uh, as you see, we've uh, reached into England. You have, to, you have to make 1% to get onto this map. Although we have not, in fact, made it either to Oxford or Cambridge, but I don't care about that. Um, so that's what's happening. We're moving into an era of unprecedented openness and large population size. So really, what I can summarize this whole, um, this whole tale is, is that evolution has lost its power. There are fewer mutations, there is much less natural selection, and there is effectively no population bottlenecks. So that the Darwin machine has come, in some senses, to a stop. So if you're worried about what utopia is going to look like, you shouldn't worry because you're living in it now. So I'll stop there. Thank you.